A few years ago, Richard Dawkins, a famous atheist and Oxford professor, made a statement where he said that he thought removing religion, this is an atheist speaking, remember, removing religion would be a bad idea for society. And the reason he gave is because people would, quote, have a license to do really bad things. So what he thought was that people who believe in some God, which he does not, that their understanding of, quote, a divine spy camera in the sky, reading their every thought, if that was removed, then people may feel free to do bad things because they feel God is no longer watching them. And in his mind, and in this interview with the New York Times, he remembered a study that one of his students did, Melissa Bateson, that she did at a university that she was um, employed at in the psychology faculty lounge. And their coffee there was an honor system that when they got some coffee, they put some money in, in the box and there were given prices to be able to give that money. And they realized they weren't getting enough money in that box and they weren't really concerned about it. But she, ever the researcher, thought that she would figure out what was actually motivating people. So alternating weeks for a season, she had a picture that she would put above the box next to the sign of prices that was a flowers. The next week, that picture would come down, and the next picture that would be brought up was a photocopy of someone's eyes looking directly at them, enlarged right there, staring at them, just on a piece of paper, mind you. You know how much the giving for the coffee, the paying for the coffee increased? 2.76 times. That's how much more money was given, almost three times as much money, because people saw a piece of paper with eyes on them, staring at them. Dawkins says this, whether irrational or not, it does unfortunately seem plausible that if someone sincerely believes God is watching his every move, he might be more likely to be good. I must say, I hate that idea. I want to believe that humans are better than that. I'd like to believe I'm honest whether anyone is watching or not. You notice his hesitancy. I don't really like that. I'd like to believe. I sure hope. But see, even the atheist knows that there's truth to this. Now, he may get some things wrong, but he gets one thing right. There is a God who sees and there is a God who knows. He may not believe in that God, but he knows that all the people that do will benefit society if they live in light of that God and his rules. So he really thinks that Christians, the religious people, are the problem, right? Because they need to keep their eyes on this God, and if they take them off, society will be bad. All the rest of us, we already know how to do good. He's a hypocrite right in front of us with his argument. It's inconsistent, and yet he's still proclaiming a God who sees and knows, and then he's being the blind fool that says, and I don't believe in that stuff. Well, there is an all-seeing, all-knowing God who created and rules the universe. The problem is this. That people are concerned about a picture of eyeballs, but they aren't concerned about that all-knowing, all-seeing, all-creating God. And so they live as if he doesn't exist, thinking that they're getting away from things. Now listen, before, before you end up with the sanctimonious, amen, that's the way the world lives. I'm talking about you and me. All those who profess the name of Christ. Because we can do this. You have done this. 
You have lived in ways that you acted as if God did not see you and God did not have knowledge of who you were or what you were doing. We've all done this, even those who profess the name of the living God. How many times have you done something in secret that you would never do within the gaze of other men and women? That you would never do if anyone else saw you? How many times have I done that? How many sins have you committed acting as if God doesn't see, acting as if God doesn't understand, acting as if God doesn't know you, did not create you, doesn't have authority over you? Now, the good news is there's always hope. For those of us who profess the name of Jesus, there is always hope and there is always power. And Isaiah speaks to his day with words that speak to our day when he gives a warning and he gives hope. He gives a warning, a message of warning, and he gives a message, actually several messages of hope. Our response today is, how will we respond to the warning and how will we embrace the hope? Whether you are confessing Christ here this morning or not, what does Isaiah's warning and Isaiah's hope better? What does God's warning and God's hope through the prophet Isaiah have to say to you this morning? Isaiah chapter 29. Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 14 of Isaiah 29. Remember that we are going through Isaiah through the, what the ESV calls ah, and some of your versions have woe. So the, the six woes in these chapters. We come to the third one today, but the second and third are tied together very much to Jerusalem. Remember that, uh, just to briefly remind us where we've been in Isaiah 29, that Jerusalem is called Ariel. Ariel and several times, and we know this is Jerusalem because Jerusalem is identified later in the text, but Ariel is used primarily for the idea that the, the translation of Ariel, one of the translation is altar hearth. And so that God is going to take this once proud nation that could be Ariel, um, God's lion. It could be that in that very first verse. They were once proud, but now they've forgotten their God. And so God is going to place them on his altar hearth as if they are the sacrifice because he is going to judge them. And he talks about them as going about their business just every day. Seasons come, seasons go. The festivals come, the festivals go. But God says, I will encamp against you the same way David encamped against Jerusalem to overtake Jerusalem. And I will come against you. And he, he's coming against them with the Assyrians. And he says, I will come against them and I will bring you down to the dust. I, I will make your voice a whisper from the dust. But then he immediately gives the hope because Isaiah is always alternating judgment and hope, judgment and hope. He immediately reminds them that God is also in a, in a blink of an eye in just a quick moment going to come against the Assyrians. He is going to come against their multitude and he is going to bring them down. He's going to bring them down so far that all of their work against Jerusalem will be just like a mist, like a dream as if it had never happened. Like a man dreaming of eating and waking up hungry, a man dreaming of drinking and still waking up thirsty. And then he turns back to Jerusalem and their people and, and he says, astonish yourselves, blind yourselves, be drunk but not with wine, stagger but not with strong drink. 
So he says, you are neglecting the word of God and you are staggering around, staggering around without wisdom and you are, you are making yourself blind. But he also says, I am making you blind. He says, this because for Yahweh has poured about upon you a spirit of deep sleep and closed your eyes to the prophets and covered your heads to the seer. So that when you hear the word of God, specifically this vision from Isaiah, it'll be like somebody handing you a letter that's sealed and you don't have the authority to open it so you can't read it. Or handing you a letter and saying, read this, but you can't read. And that's going to be the effect. And all this because they worship him externally, but not internally. Outwardly, they're worshiping him, but inwardly, their hearts are far from them. So God condemns them for this, and God says that he is going to act against them because the fear of Yahweh is the commandments taught by men, not the commandments taught by God. And so he says, we expect him to say he's going to do nothing but judgment, but he actually gives this great movement that he's going to do that will include judgment, but it also includes hope. And you can read that right in verse 14 of chapter 29. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonder, wonderful things with this people. He's done it in the past. He's delivered them from, uh, from Egypt. He's delivered them before, and he will do it again with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. God is acting against the wisdom of the world who has scorned his word, his wisdom. Now that little ending part there ties us into our passage. So stand with me as we read today's section and see how it ties in together with the first ah that we find against Ariel, beginning in 29.15. Ah, you who hide deep from Yahweh your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me. Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest? In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of the book and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel for... The ruthless shall come to nothing, and the scoffer cease, and all who watch to do evil shall be cut off, who by a word make a man out to be an offender, and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate, and with an empty plea turn aside him who is in the right. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall no more be ashamed, no more shall his face grow pale, for when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding. And those who murmur will accept instruction. The grass withers and the flower falls. Maybe seated. So in this third woe, this third awe, we are shown four transformations that challenge and instruct Ariel. And if we were taking that as application right now, we see four transformations that challenge and instruct us 
as well this morning. That first transformation, wisdom is transformed into folly as the clay denies the work and wisdom of the potter. Look right at the beginning at verse 15. We see again this marked out, this section, this woe, this ah, this this lament over what's going on, maybe even a call to justice. And he talks about a group of people who are hiding. They're deeply hiding their counsel from Yahweh and their deeds are in the dark. Now, with biblical eyes, we know any deeds that are done in the dark are marked out as unholy deeds. If that's their purpose, their purpose is to be done in in an area where not as many people see them, where they might be able to hide. And God is saying to them through, um, through Isaiah, he is saying that these people doing these deeds in the dark are trying to hide their counsel from the Lord. And, and in doing so, they're saying, either with their words or God interpreting their actions, who sees us? Who knows us? As if there isn't a God who sees and if there isn't, as if there isn't a God who knows. As if everything that they do, no one else knows but themselves. Now, by definition, if they're doing this, whose wisdom are they counting on? Only their own. Whatever is developed inside of themselves. And these are the same people who are astonishing themselves and have made themselves blind. These are the same people who ignored the word, ignored the word of God. These are the same people in the last chapter who were the scoffers. This, this is a group of people who have taken the word of the Lord and set it aside. Now these counsels that they're taking in the deep in the context of Isaiah 29 in his day are probably the people and Hezekiah getting ready to and being tempted to find shelter with an alliance in Egypt against Assyria rather than to find wisdom and shelter from their own God. And we will see that developed in coming chapters. So we're not going to spend a lot of time there. It will be developed little by little until we see it happening right in front of us in the chapter. So historically, that's the thing being addressed, but that's just the tip of the spear, isn't it? That's not the problem. That's the fruit. The problem is they have ignored the word of God. They have substituted God's wisdom and they put their wisdom in its place. That's the problem. And God calls it like it is. You're living as if I don't see you, God says, and I don't know what you're doing. I have no knowledge of you. And how does he describe it in verse 16? You turn things upside down. You pervert them. That's what the idea is. You're taking what's natural and normal for, the, for my people to depend upon me, and you're turning it upside down. You're transforming it into something that's hideous, into something that's ugly. You turn things upside down, and then he puts the flesh on it. He, let, he holds our attention with this. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? And what's our answer? Of course not. There's no, there's no way we can picture and envision anything where the potter has any, uh, the, the clay has any rights over the potter and what the potter does with that clay. In the metaphor and its use, if, if you're watching a potter and you're watching them exercise their giftings and their talents and their art and they're making something, you're not listening to the clay say, hey, make me wider on that side. Give me the handle on the other side. I would rather have a wider spout. You're not hearing that. It's folly to us. That's the point, Right? And so the image grabs us right away. And if he stops there, we're all going, no, that would never happen. Look back at the text. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? Shall the thing made, that the thing made should say to its maker, thank you, he did not make me. So this is even afterward. After the making has been done. 
after the work has been done, as if the clay shaped into whatever God said to shape it into speaks back and said, he didn't make me. I made myself. I'm pretty good. Thank you. I don't need the help of anybody. I mean, he may have started, but it's, it's all me. Or the thing formed, say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. He, he doesn't get what's going on here. He doesn't have any wisdom. This is the way he is talking about his people in response to his creative, uh, miraculous power, wisdom, and knowledge. And we sit and we shudder. We say, how in the world could they do that? I mean, they got a prophet standing right in front of them saying this stuff. Why aren't they just bowed down at this point? Well, this kind of imagery happens through scripture at different times. We'll see it a couple of other times in Isaiah. Chapter 45, 9, it's used again in a negative sense like this. In chapter 64, verse 8, it's a positive confession where God's people say, Oh Lord, you are the potter and we are the clay. It's a, it's a response of confession of God's sovereign hand and they're bowing and repenting before him. We also see it in, in Jeremiah chapter 18, verses four through six, where God claims his own authority with this same kind of vision of the potter and clay. And of course, we see it in Romans nine, where the challenge goes against those people who would, who would challenge God in his work of salvation. And he uses the same image Paul does in Romans chapter nine to say that God has a right to do it. And who are you, O oh man, to question that right? So this is a powerful imagery for us in scripture. And it's the turning upside down. It's the transformation of what should be happening in God's people. And we know in Isaiah's time that they need to hear this. And we are going to find out that Hezekiah does better than his daddy does. Hezekiah will do better than Ahaz. But then we can't just leave it there in the 8th century, can we? It has to come to us. Because we are a people who can do this. I mean, we are concerned about a lot of things in our world today. I don't know how many of you use um, Alexa or uh, Hey Google. Probably I've activated some of your, active, uh, some of your devices just by saying that. Hey Google, <laughs> is this guy speaking truth or not? I wouldn't have those things within 10 feet of me. I mean, we've had our occasions where a verbal conversation shows up in ads and we have nothing that's supposed to be listening to us. But we're concerned about that. We're concerned about people exercising authority over us that don't have it, and rightfully so, or that are exercising in the wrong way. It's all the buzz. Read the news, complain about it. I do. So we're concerned about all of this. We don't want anybody exercising authority over us that shouldn't. We don't want anybody exercising authority over us in a way that's evil or a way that's wicked, and we're concerned about it. We're ready to fight up against that. And yet, when the lights go out, we're not so concerned about who has authority over us or who sees us. Or when the wrong people are watching, we won't do what we want to do. Now, it's good that you don't do what you want to do if it's evil, but it's bad if you don't do it because of who is watching you in a human form instead of the Holy Spirit watching you and guiding you and you dragging him into your mess. And we do this. Listen, if you're sitting here and saying, I never do that, you need to go on your knees before the Lord because you have done that. We have all been guilty of that. Now, God is going to offer us hope here, but the first thing we have to do before we can embrace the hope is confess the sin. That there 
there are times that we do this and that even when we don't want to, we're drug into it. Even afterward, we're regretful. We need to do what the right thing is. And for a believer, it's repent and return to the trust that we have in the finished work of Christ. But if you're a non-believer here and you recognize this, there are things that your conscience tells you you should not do in front of other people. Nobody should know you do that. But when it's dark, you do do that. You don't have hope. There's nothing that you're going to turn to except your own righteousness. That when you feel better about what you've done, you say, I'm not going to do it again. You feel better about that and you think that's going to fix things. It fixes nothing. Because you have sealed your judgment. So if you don't know Christ here this morning, the hope that's being given to you, let me just tip my hand of where we're heading. The hope that we're, give, that we're offering to you is Jesus. Nothing else. His perfect work and repentance before him, trust in his work, being, being redeemed and forgiven of your sin and set off on a righteous path because you have been called in holiness to live in holiness, to be holy because your God is holy. That's what's before us. So you need to listen with those ears. Now, if you're here and you know Christ and you know I'm speaking truth and you're already repenting, maybe you've already done your repenting for that deed. And maybe you're even struggling. You keep getting drawn back into the same thing over and over and over. The hope is the same. It is Jesus. It's nothing else but his perfect work. It's not anything. Sometimes we have to repent of our repenting. Because when we repent, it's not really repentance. It's, I got my hand stuck in the cookie jar and I'm sorry I did and I don't like the consequences. Take them away. So this is the message from Isaiah in the 8th century BC and he's using language that points us forward right to Christ. So we've had the warning. But there's also hope. There's also a solution if we're caught up in this. That it's not, it's not merely a warning. It's not merely a message of warning, but it is a message of hope as well. So wisdom is transformed into folly as the clay denies the work and wisdom of the potter. But the second transformation, the oppressed will be transformed into worshipers as the deaf and blind begin to see and hear. Look at verse 17. Now we have a picture here that is a little bit confusing, but its message is not. What exactly the picture is bringing to us, what, what metaphor it's representing is a little confusing, but the message is not. God is in the business of transformation. That's his business. Verse 17, is it not yet a very little while? So we're saying, okay, something's coming and it's coming, coming quick because we've been left in the dust. We are guilty. Even as believing, believing people who are believing in Jesus, we feel the weight of our sin. Even as we know that he's forgiven it, we don't want to be continuing down those roads. We want to be able to truly repent and turn in a different direction. But the weight is strong. And so like James says, we repent and we bow before him and he will exalt us at the proper time. So in a little while, in a very little while, and is it not a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest? Now, this could have a couple of different meanings, a couple of different ways to get to the same meaning. And I'm not really sure which one it is. Lebanon is this area in the north from Israel. And, and it, it is not at this point a, a specific kingdom as much as a group, a, 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 a geographical location, a geographical land. Now, we think of Lebanon and we think of what when we think of Lebanon? 
the cedars of Lebanon, the richness, right? So part of what Lebanon has is that coastal region where the mountains are on the, on the east and they come down in toward the Mediterranean Sea and it's full of just rich forest of all kinds of cedars. And, the, and, and it, it's rich and it's vibrant and it's fertile. But the mountain range... Mount Lebanon, and also um, there are other mountains in this range that they are, uh, they are more desolate and they are talked about as being more desolate. And so it, when we talk about Lebanon, the first time we're really hearing about it is because it's the northern, it, it's the southern part of Lebanon is the northern border of the promised land that's given to God's people. And sometimes Lebanon is used as this, this, uh, this verdant picture to picture the righteousness of God's people. So God's people are talked about as Lebanon and the fruitfulness of Lebanon. Other times, Lebanon is talked about as a wasteland, as a desert, as, as a place where it doesn't grow. So if we're talking about that Lebanon, the mountainish Lebanon, then that, the, the infertile, shall be turned into a, fertile fe- a fruitful field. The word could be used for a garden inside a grove of trees. And then... Either that fruitful field or any fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest. So there's a transformation from barrenness to fruitfulness. But it also could be the fruitful side of Lebanon that is changed and transformed and then transformed back into a forest, but it's transformed into a greater forest than it was before. I lean toward the, the, the wasteland of Lebanon being into the, turned into the fruitful field and, re, and then regarded as a forest to, to go from not fruitful to fruitful, a transformation to the good. And either way we look at it, it's still a transformation and it's an impossible transformation if God is not active in it. So that is setting us up for what's happening. Look at verse 18. In that day, so there's a day coming where there's a transformation going to happen. The deaf shall hear the words of a book and out of the gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. Now there's a little bit of a nod toward those earlier verses um, where, where the nine through 12 of being reversed, right? That God is gonna open eyes and, and God is gonna open deaf ears. The meek, or maybe the afflicted. Some of your versions will have afflicted. The word can mean either one. I, I, I think afflicted might be better in the context, but either one brings the same meaning to us. The afflicted shall obtain fresh joy. Is the way the, the um, ESV translated. It, it means more joy, joy upon joy, continuing, increasing joy. The meek or the afflicted shall obtain increasing joy in Yahweh, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. So those who have been oppressed will be not oppressed. They will be relieved. Instead of being afflicted, um, ending up in meekness, they they will continue to grow in their joy. Instead of being poor physically, but also poor in spirit, I think both ideas are here for us because this is a spiritual passage. If If it's physical, it's physical with our eyes being nodded toward the spiritual side of things. They shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. You see the worshiping that happens? It is recognizing Yahweh in his holiness. Specifically, that, that, that's drawing us to that, the holiness of God, and worshiping, exulting in him. And with the meek and the poor, we're tempted to think of the Beatitudes of Matthew 5. The meek shall What? inherit the earth and and the poor in spirit theirs is the kingdom of heaven and the beatitudes are a picture of a believer they're not like something that we just go and we do all the beatitudes and then the world will come to jesus it's because jesus has come to us and we are united with him that's the way we live and so we're already thinking of a spiritual transformation so 
The second transformation is the oppressed will be transformed into worshipers and the deaf and blind began to see and hear. So follow the pattern. Those who couldn't hear and see the word of God begin to see and hear. And as they begin to see and hear, they are doing the word of God and they are turned into worshipers. They begin to worship the God who reveals himself in his word. And those are the ones who are the oppressed. But God is not done, is he? Because there's, it's not just going to happen like that. God is going to take action against the oppressors. The third transformation, the oppressors will be transformed into non-existence as the ruthless scoffers and evildoers are brought to nothing and cut off. Look at verse 21 or 20. You see that verse 20 begins with four. This transformation in the meek or the afflicted and and the poor, that's happening because God is going to do something. They are relieved, and instead of being the oppressed, now they are the ones that are exalted, and the ones who are the oppressors, they will be now oppressed by God. Look what it says. The ruthless shall cease shall become, the ruthless shall come to nothing. Now we've already been told in earlier, in last week's sermon, earlier in 29, in chapter 29, verse five, but the multitude of your foreign foes, the Assyrians, shall be like small dust and the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. So we're being reminded of that again, that God is gonna come against the enemies. God comes against our enemies. He may not come today in today's time and space, but soon and very soon, All evil will be dealt with by God. Even if it exists now and God doesn't seem to be caring about it, there's a reason that God gives us. God is long-suffering so that people would repent. And so even in the long-suffering, even as we see evil advancing, this is our response. We know God's in charge of that. He's the potter. He sees everything, he knows everything, he has all power, and he created it all. And he has a plan, because he said he's working out his kingdom, and he's advancing it. And he has sent his son once, and he will send his son again. So we know that when he sends his son a second time, everything everything will be finalized, and there'll be no more sin. No sin will enter into the gates of the new heavens and new earth. It won't won't be there. So we know that's happening. So now, even as evil is advancing, this is something that encourages me, and I have to remind myself of. Because the first thing I want to do is, I don't like that evil advancing. And I don't. But why is God not challenging it right now? Why is he not bringing it to dust today? Because he's still waiting for people to repent. And so we can rejoice that even now, that even though that sin is advancing, and even though we may pray against it, that God would take those people out so the evil stops. If God chooses not to do that, we rejoice because they still might yet repent. That's a gospel view of the world around us. And this is what's happening and what's promised here in verse 20. The ruthless shall come to nothing. The scoffer, we met them in last chapter, the ones who scoff against the God's word. Now those scoffers were part of God's people, remember? If they don't repent, they're under judgment. They are not the spiritual seed of Abraham. They're the physical seed of Abraham. And now we're seeing again that the the, uh, scoffers will cease and all who do evil shall be cut off. There shall be no more. And then there's these descriptions of people who do evil, who don't exercise judgment, who oppress the poor, who um, cheat and lie in court, or maybe they're the officials in court and they don't stick up for for the people who are the downtrodden, they stick up for the people with money. That's what's being described in verse 21. That's the evildoers and God will come against those and it will be very soon. So there's comfort and encouragement for Isaiah's time. If the people are, are being oppressed, Isaiah is saying, endure, worship, trust in the Lord. 
read his word. And when you read his word and, and, and take his word inside of you and act upon his word, then you will rejoice and your joy and your, your, um, your joy will come over and over and you will exalt in the Holy One of Israel until the day where God overcomes your enemies and he will. So there's great comfort here, not only for Isaiah's day, but for us as well. Those enemies of the Christian faith, God will deal with them. The enemies who are in the gate, the enemies who are calling themselves Christian, but are letting the wolves in or letting the, the camel stick their nose under the tent. God will deal with them. If they're his, he will deal with them with discipline. If they're being revealed that they don't know him, then he's going to deal with them with judgment. So we trust God for all of this. And that's what Isaiah is telling the people of his day, because God is in the business of transformations and he has a goal. And one day transformations will not be needed anymore because his goal will be met and the kingdom will be fulfilled and we will be part of it if we persevere. The last transformation, Jacob's disobedient children will be transformed into worshiping holy children by the work of Yahweh's hands. Look at verse 22. Therefore, so because of this, because this transformation is promised, Thus says Yahweh, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. Now, this is so interesting. He redeemed Abraham. Nowhere in the Old Testament scriptures that I find that we talk about Abraham being specifically redeemed, but he has been redeemed. He has been brought out of Ur of the Chaldees, and he has been set up, and God said he will make his name for him. He doesn't have to build a tower to Babel like the others did. God is going to take care of him, and he makes him promises. So when we see the God who redeemed Abraham, we're automatically thinking the covenant with Abraham, right? Aren't you automatically thinking that? When we see Abraham, we're thinking of God's covenant with Abraham, where he promises that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him, and his seed will be innumerable. And so we have that covenant in mind, receiving it first as an 8th century um, Israelite, we know that God has promised to redeem his people. And yet within that covenant to Abraham, there is a physical promise and a spiritual promise. There's a physical seed and a spiritual seed. And that's what's being brought before us now. So we have the Abrahamic covenant in his mind concerning the house of Jacob. So we're in the believing line of Abraham, where Abraham... Isaac, not Ishmael, right? Jacob, not Esau. So we're thinking of the house of Jacob. And now our minds are turned toward the believing line, the, the spiritual line of Abraham, those with circumcised heart, the elect, the remnant. That's what we're thinking already. Jacob shall no more be ashamed. No more shall his face grow pale. No more, no more will he be embarrassed, will he blush. And so this is the metaphor. Today's phrase might be, Jacob will no longer roll over in his grave. It's that kind of thinking. Jacob would be bothered by the sin of his descendants. But Jacob will see the spiritual seed that God makes these promises to, the remnant to, that he is going to transform them even in spite of them. How many times have we seen that? That God is going to act toward grace, in grace toward his remnant and in judgment toward those who are his enemies. And that's what Jacob sees. Watch what it says. For... Jacob shall no more be ashamed, no more shall his face grow pale. For when he sees his children, the work of 
my hands, Yahweh says. Now, some of the versions have different translations in this, trying to soften it or change it a little bit. I think the ESV gets this right. It is Jacob metaphorically looking down at his people, the whole lot, and being ashamed because it looks like the whole lot is turned against God, rejecting his word, living by their wisdom, fearing the commandments of men, not Yahweh himself. And he's as if he's looking out and seeing that, but then he sees what God will do in the transformation for his spiritual seed, and he's no longer going to be embarrassed because God has intervened. For when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. Now this name, the work of my hands, tells us that we're talking about the redeemed. It tells us we're talking about the remnant. We've seen this already with another country. Do you remember where Assyria and their remnant was the work of God's hands? There it was talking about the people he is redeeming out of Assyria even. We're also going to see it coming up in chapter 45 and chapter 60, talking about God's people um, and God's remnant. So when he talks about the work of his hands, we're thinking in the context of this chapter, what? The potter and the clay, right? The potter and the clay image, the work of his hands. And the people he's talking about are the elect. They're the redeemed. They're the remnant. They're the ones who God intends to work salvation in them. And what will they do? They will sanctify my name. They will make it holy. They will make it holy. That's what that means. They will make my name holy. And we'll talk about that in a moment. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. This is the proper response to God by the people that he has redeemed, the people that he has brought out of Egypt. It is the proper response. And it is the the response of those who have circumcised hearts. For us, it's the response of the people who are in Christ. Remember the Lord's Prayer? Hallowed be thy name. And we say on earth be done, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? How does that done? That that is us hallowing his name, holying his name. And we're going to get more into this in just a moment, but that's what's in our mind because this is the Holy One now of Jacob. Same thing as Holy One of Israel. And holiness is right at the forefront of what's happening. And that holiness is because of the work of God and exudes itself out in worship of the God who transforms them. Look at verse 24. And those who go astray in spirit, already, have you ever gone astray in spirit? (laughs) Have you ever just done the wrong thing, even knowingly and done it anyway? Or even halfway into it, you realize, but you don't stop yourself? All of a sudden, we're waiting for what's next. Is it hope or judgment? Because I have done that. Those who go astray in spirit, will come to understanding. (sighs) Hallelujah, the Lord transforms, does he not? And those who murmur, I've never grumbled in my life, have you? (laughs) This is the mark of disobedient Israel in the wilderness, right? They grumble, they grumble, they grumble against God. Oh, that you just let us go back. Oh, we have this quail coming out of our nostrils. We'd least like to go back where the food is, the bread is cheaper and grumble, grumble, grumble. And we can do the same thing. We can live in our life and grumble against all that God is doing because we don't like it. And it happens every day for us. Have you ever grumbled against what's going on around us instead of praying? Have you ever grumbled instead of embracing God's sovereign will in that and praying for those who are there? Praying for those who are on the evil side? We grumble. Have you ever grumbled when something happens in your life that you don't like before you stop and ask God why he's allowed that? Because we are like Job, right? Though he slay me, 
And yet when something happens, I mean, even just, even just the prices go up and we grumble, don't we? And I'm not saying we have to like it. I'm saying don't, shouldn't believers look at what's going on around us and realize we've been transformed. And there's another way for us to respond. And it doesn't mean we have to like everything that's going on. But those who murmur, those who grumble, will accept instruction. Our knees are bowed before the word of Yahweh. Now, there's something that has to happen. There, there's something that, that needs to happen to reverse this, to reverse the grumblers, the scoffers, the, the, the ones who, who squash down the word of God, the, the ones who aren't listening, the ones who make themselves blind, the ones who astonish themselves into, into spiritual drunkenness. There's something that needs to happen because men just don't all of a sudden one day clean themselves up and brush themselves up and say, God, now I'm righteous and present themselves to the Lord. If they did, the Lord would humble them to the dust because they, we are sinful men and women. So something must happen. And this passage points us forward to everything that needs to happen because there is something promised to us that will reverse it all. Turn to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares Yahweh. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, no, Yahweh, for they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and will remember their sins no more. There is an action that God will take, an unbreakable covenant, an unconditional covenant that God makes so that the transformation in his people is secure. You know where we're heading next, Ezekiel chapter 36. And I know these are familiar scriptures to us, but every time we interact with a text that brings us to these promises, we're interacting with it with a different aspect of the covenant and a different aspect of the promise of this new covenant. Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 22. 36, Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 22. If we went back to verse 16, we would see the Lord being constantly concerned about his holy name. And then verse 22 says, therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. What will God's people do? 
And God's people, according to Isaiah chapter 29, as God works upon them, God's people will be those people that sanctify, make holy his name, sanctify the Holy One of Jacob, stand in awe of the God of Israel. This is what God promises to do because of the holiness of his name. And he works that out through his people. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares the Lord Yahweh, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. How's he going to do that? I will, look for all the things you're going to do here. And you'll come up with a zero. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness uncleanliness, and from your idols I will cleanse you. So the, the sins will be forgiven and the penalty will be paid. Verse 26, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Now that's a good thing. Your heart of stone is dead. Your heart of flesh. It's not flesh in the negative sense. It's flesh in the positive sense of living and breathing and beating after God now because it's been enlivened by God. Verse 27, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So now, instead of taking the word of God and putting it aside and becoming blind and not obeying God, obeying the commandments of men, God says, Jeremiah 31, I'll put my law within you, write it in your hearts, and you will all know me because these are talking, we're talking about the redeemed, the ones whose hearts have been transformed, the ones who have been, um, had that heart surgery already done. And now God will cause us to walk in his statutes because that's what he does in the transformation. And you say, well, wow, if he's, uh, verse 28, and you shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And when we look at all the biblical theology, the land is not a postage stamp of geographical dirt. It is the new heavens and new earth. It is, it, we are the bride of Christ living in the new Jerusalem. We are the new Jerusalem, according to Revelation. So God will do all this. But yet in the middle, there's what? In the middle, we're still fighting sin. We're not there yet, but that's the promise. But we have tasted it. Why? Because Jesus has come. How do we know all this has happened now? Turn to Matthew. Matthew chapter 11. I've saved all the references you're going to look to to the end here, and you only have a couple. So turn with me to Matthew 11, where we see verses from, our, from Isaiah 29, along with others, quoted here. Look at verse 2 of Matthew 11. Now, when John heard in prison, it's about John the Baptist now, when John the Baptist heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So we know that what's talked about in Isaiah 29 happens 
in the initial stages when Jesus comes. Jesus says, it has come. You don't look for anyone else. I am the Messiah promised from the Old Testament. And even John the Baptist looking for that that nationalistic expression of salvation, Jesus points him upward to a, a spiritual salvation. So we know that it has already happened. And if it's already happened, we know that we preach Christ crucified and we call people to repent of their sins and trust in him. So they are entering into this already or not yet stage as we're heading to the point where there is no more suffering, sin, or dying. But in the meantime, we have marching orders and they're marked by holiness. Turn, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We're not going to go through and spend another three hours or four sermons in this wonderful, glorious chapter. But I want you to just look at verse 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So if we are believers, we are in Christ and we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. All the things that are spiritual blessings for Jesus are ours because we're seated with him in the heavenly places. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So there is God's sovereign choice of those who he's bringing to salvation chose in Christ before the world was created. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before him. So we were chosen. We were predestined to this. God chose us and set our affections on us because his intention that we would be holy and blameless before him. Because we cannot be before him without being holy. So that is, before the foundation of the world, all those that God chose, he is choosing them for this purpose. Now turn over to chapter 4 of Ephesians. I, therefore, verse 1, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk, that is to live, in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, what is the calling to which we have been called? Into holiness. Now, it's other things as well, but holiness is what marks Isaiah 29. So that's where we're looking at. We are called, we we are chosen in holiness, we are called in holiness, and now we're to walk in holiness. And to have our walk worthy, it means that we are walking, reflecting the holiness of God so that, as it were, Jacob isn't rolling over in his grave. That we are walking according to the new being that we are. We have put off the old and put on the new. And that is marked by holiness. And it's going to talk about other things in there, but I'm not getting distracted by those. I want you to go study those, but look at this. Before the foundation of the world, God's people are, are, are marked out for, chosen for holiness, and then we're commanded to walk in a manner worthy of that calling because we've been called into holiness. I want you to turn to another place. I want you to turn. Why is this walk so important? Turn to Colossians chapter one. Two more places you're going to turn. Colossians chapter one. So stay with me. If holiness is a mark of the people of God and they worship him in holiness and truth and spirit and in truth and in Isaiah 29, the people who are redeemed are transformed to be able to sanctify Yahweh and we are chosen in holiness and we are called to walk in holiness, then it must matter. Look at, look at Colossians chapter 1 verse 21. And you, 
who, were, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, well, one way of saying that in Isaiah, the ones who go astray in spirit and murmur, just one way, but what he's saying is those, you used to be enemies of God. This, this is who you used to be. So there was a transformation that happened. You who were once alien and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, again, Isaiah 29, those who do evil deeds will be brought down, will be cut off, they will be no more. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to what? Present you to live a life however you choose to live it because you're the king of your world. This reconciliation, this transformation has been in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The work of God in Christ is to allow you to be before him for all eternity because he is presenting you holy and blameless to himself. And he does that through our sanctification after he has saved us, after his righteousness is credited to our account. But here's the warning, 23. This is why it's important to walk in a, to live a life worthy of the calling. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. In other words, giving credence to the doctrines of men, living your own life, living by your own wisdom, doing what you want to do in opposition to the word of God, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. One more place, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Just a couple of pages over. First Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Talking about Paul wanting to journey there. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that, so this abounding in love, right? That's a, that's a mark now that's going, to, that's going to prove something. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Do you see how important holiness is in our walk? And it's demonstrated, it is proven, and God's love is established in us to make us in that holiness so that he is preparing us for to present as an offering to himself, spotless and without blemish, Ephesians chapter 5. So this idea in, in Isaiah 29 points us forward to the Messiah and takes all of the themes of Isaiah 29 and wraps them up in the gospel and says, this is us. We are the people who are equipped. We are the people who are, who are changed. We are the people who now have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us so that we are always living for the glory of God, that we are always children of light, not walking as children of the, of the darkness. We don't do that anymore. We are a light that's not under a bushel. We're not hiding the gospel. We're not hiding our righteousness that is Christ living in and through us. We are living in such a way to sanctify the name of God, to sanctify Christ. And other people see that and are drawn in to that holiness when God is drawing them because if he's drawing them and he's going to save them, they've been chosen for what? Holiness, which requires Christ. So the mark, this is our mark. And you've heard now a judgment, a message of judgment, a message of warning, if you will, and a message of hope. And if you're outside of Christ, you're still in the message of warning. You need to turn toward Christ, repent of your sins, turn away from your sins and turn into Christ and trust 
everything that he has done for you and give up your life and start living his. That puts you into the hope side because of all Christ's work and not yours. But if you're here this morning and you already know Christ, then the hope should be just giving you all this joy overflowing because you know that this life is going to be full of struggles. And even if you sin, the hope is guaranteed in Christ. The mark of our, of our salvation is the repentance from that sin and returning to trust in Christ. It's not, it's not to say, well, it doesn't matter. It's to say that God is disciplining us and granting us repentance so that we are returning to faith in him and his finished work, returning to listen and hear his word and to obey it because he works that holiness in us. So Isaiah 29 has everything to do with us in the Bible Church of Cabot this third Sunday of 2023. Because this is what Christ intends for us. It's his work worked out through us as he advances his kingdom until he comes again. That's our calling. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you reveal yourself in your word in such a way that gives us the hope that you will not abandon your people. That you have provided everything that we need for life and godliness and that that life and godliness, Father, is, is what you called us into. That you want us to walk in holiness that sanctifies your name. And you have done this for the holiness of your name. You have redeemed your people that you might continue redeeming from every tongue, tongue tribe, people, and nation. And you are using your people, Father, as your arms and legs and feet and mouth to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. Let us not overturn our lives. Let's not us over, let us not overturn our doctrine by living lives that don't reflect what you've taught us in your word. Let us constantly hold on because you are holding on to us. Let us constantly read and meditate. Let us constantly not neglect your word and the power of your spirit in us as we crucify sin. And God, do not let us be a people who thinks we can live in secret for you know our inward parts, you formed them, and we can go nowhere, nowhere, that you don't know us, see us, and care for us. And Father, we ask you not to let us be a people who ever questions your judgment, whoever never to turn to you and act as if we were the potter and you were the clay. So we are grateful for your salvation. We are grateful for your constant care for us, even as we crucify sin in this life, awaiting the next. And we thank you for these promises in Jesus' name. Amen.